Hello, I'm William Henry. Michael and Sylvia Penny and I are exploring some of the main themes of Ecclesiastes in this series of podcasts. And this is the fifth podcast in the series. And in this one, we're going to be thinking about money, wealth and riches and what Solomon has to say about these subjects. I suppose that Solomon was well qualified to speak about wealth, wasn't he, Mike? Because he was probably the richest king that Israel ever had. Oh, he certainly was. I mean, if you look at 1 Kings 10, you read of all the splendor of Solomon's wealth. Verses 34 and 35 say that the weight of gold he received each year was 666 talents. That means in one year, that's about 23 tons of gold. And, and that's not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and governors of the territories he controlled. And that's just his annual income, never mind his assets, chariots and horses and palaces and so on. Verse 23 of 1 Kings 10 said he was richer in he was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. Yeah, well, I suppose he would need all that money to fund his 700 wives. Oh, yeah. And not to mention his 300 concubines. They're a bit more expensive, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. All right, that's enough, you two. We're interested in Solomon's wealth, not his wives and his women. So what does Solomon have to say about wealth? Well, Solomon does recognise that wealth can be a great benefit. In Ecclesiastes 5.19, he says this. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. Yeah, we'd imagine that would be a kind of an ideal sort of life, wouldn't it? Having wealth and health, having freedom from oppression, doing work that gives you satisfaction. I'd imagine that somebody in that situation would feel really blessed. Yes, they certainly are. But following on from that, though, is that God's will for someone to become rich and gain wealth and possessions and just spend them on themselves? Oh, no, no. I, don't, I, I think God expects us to be good stewards of the resources he has given us. And I think we talked about this in a previous podcast in this series. Um, some people can handle money very unselfishly and can use much of their wealth for the benefit of others and in God's service. Well, Barnabas in the book of Acts was like that. He seems to be very well off and he sold a field and he gave the money to the apostles to buy food for the poor in Jerusalem. Yes, he did. Yes. And Paul gives this instruction to Timothy, who was who was a church leader, as you know. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put they're hoping God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command those who are wealthy to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. Gosh, I think that's in 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. Okay, so if God has blessed us with wealth, We've got this duty to recognize where it comes from and to use it in a generous way to help people who are less fortunate than ourselves. But, I mean, this doesn't just apply to the super rich, does it? Shouldn't we all have to give something? 
That's exactly what Paul implies in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, where it says, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Right. So what was Paul actually wanting that money for? Uh, well, basically for famine relief. A famine had hit uh, Jerusalem and Judea. And we read about this in the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, it was when Claudius was the Roman emperor. Oh, yeah, I think that's well documented in secular history, too, that famine. But what mm. Paul is suggesting is a really good idea, isn't it? Regularly setting aside a generous portion of our income for the Lord's work. And I suppose that includes helping the poor. Yes, as you said a moment ago, Mike, some people can handle their wealth unselfishly. But too often, selfishness and sometimes greed takes over. Yeah, that's right. The first thing Solomon has to say about wealth and money comes in Ecclesiastes uh, 5.10, where we read, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. That's exactly the problem, isn't it? I heard of a rich man who was asked how much money he needed, and he said, just a little more. And it's always just a little more. So what do you think? Do you think Solomon was generous with his wealth, Mike? Uh, no, I, I don't. Th I don't have the impression he was. I don't think so. He taxed the people quite hard. You just have to look at the history of Israel. And when Solomon died, the people approached uh, Rehoboam, who was Solomon's son, who was the heir to the throne. And they said to Rehoboam, your father put a heavy yoke on us. But now lighten the harsh labor and heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. And you can read that in uh, 2 Chronicles 10, 4. But unfortunately, Rehoboam didn't take any notice of their appeal and made the oppression even harder, which then resulted in civil war in Israel and the nation of Israel splitting in two. So Solomon oppressed the people with heavy taxation and forced labor, so that he could carry out all his vanity projects. But when you look at what Solomon says about wealth, you can see that he realizes the, well, the futility, the uselessness of accumulating wealth just for its own sake. Yeah, yeah. In Ecclesiastes 2, he talks about all the great project he'd undertaken, and he denied himself nothing. But later in the chapter, he concluded that everything was passing, Everything was fleeting, chasing after the wind, and nothing was gained by it. In chapter 4, verse 6, Solomon says, Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. <laughs> so Solomon's saying there that it's better to be, well, well, not so wealthy because of the cares that riches bring. Oh, yes, and that's not the only place he says something like that. In Ecclesiastes 5, we read in verse 12 that, the sleep of a labourer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. Yeah, you would think, wouldn't you, that, that wealth would free you from problems and worries, but it just seems to create all sorts of other difficulties that you wouldn't have had if maybe you had less money. Are there any other problems linked with money that Solomon talks about? Yes, yes. He mentions the fact that people can become corrupted by wealth. That's right. We looked at Ecclesiastes chapter 5 a moment ago when Solomon says that the rich can't sleep. But in the same chapter, Solomon says this. 
If you see the poor oppressed in a district, justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. Ooh, that's a bit cynical, isn't it? Well, maybe, but he goes on, for one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. That's in verses 8 to 9 of chapter 5. So that sounds like a description of the ladder of success and achievement, isn't it? People climbing up the ladder, stepping over others, or even stepping on the faces of others to get higher up that ladder. All the time they keep an eye on the people below them, watching them, just in case they try to climb past. Yeah, that's a that's a bit of a greasy pole, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But people can get so desperate for success that it changes their whole personality. And it's a change for the worse. Yes, Ecclesiastes 7 verse 7 says that extortion turns a wise person into a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. But does Paul not also warn Timothy about the danger of loving money? Oh, yeah. Yes, he does. Yes, that comes in 1 Timothy uh, 6 verse 10, where Paul says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And it's a very well-known verse, but not so many people know what it goes on to say. It says this, Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Yes, that's a very powerful verse. Some people who love money and are eager to get their hands on even more are often quite willing to bend the rules and take shortcuts and even not worry too much about Christian ethics. And... No doubt some will wander from the faith. And of course, if they bend the rules too much, they may break the law and end up in court. That may be one of the griefs of wor or worries that contribute to their sleepless nights. But if you wheel and deal with people, people may wheel and deal with you and then you can lose out. No, that's true, yeah. And I suppose that's why in his advice on the type of person a Christian leader should be, Paul says he should not be a lover of money. Uh, and, he, and, he, and he says that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3. You know, earlier we quoted uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and a lot of people misquote that verse and say, money is the root of all evil. Have you heard that? Oh, yes, that's what people tend to say. But they miss out the A and they put a the there. Money is only one of the roots of evil, but there are others. That's right, and it's the love of money that's the, a root of evil. But as you say, there are lots of other roots of evil, such as lust or the will to power. But, you know, coming back to money, the scriptures urge people with wealth to be generous with it, but they don't tell them necessarily to give it all away. Yes, the only time when someone was asked to give all their wealth away was the rich young ruler who came to Jesus in Matthew 19. Jesus told him that if he wanted to be perfect, he had to sell everything and follow Jesus. That's right, but it was his love of his wealth that prevented him from following Jesus, not the wealth itself. Uh, so we, we're back where we started. <laughs> the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. At one end of the scale, it causes some people to steal or commit fraud. And at the other end of the scale, it prevents people from following Jesus wholeheartedly. Gosh, that's, that's really something to think about, isn't it? How much does our wealth and our money come between us and the Lord? Paul, I think, was very clear about the dangers of loving money. But I think Jesus had a bit to say about that too, didn't he? 
Yes, he was even more emphatic than Paul. He said, you cannot serve God and money. That's in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verse 24. And in the next verse, we learn the Lord told the Pharisees that they were lovers of money. Yeah, and, and don't forget the parable of the sower, uh, you know, because it tells us there, the seed falling amongst the thorns refers to people who hear the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of riches, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word, making it unfruitful. And that's in Matthew thirteen twenty-two. That's the problem, isn't it? It's the deceitfulness of riches. It becomes a problem when we hope in it and trust in riches for our security. Yes, as we quoted earlier, Paul says to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. That's in 1 Timothy 6 verse 17. So then, here Paul is talking about the uncertainty of wealth. And in our society, so many people have lost their wealth with all the successive crises we had, starting with the banking crisis. Yeah, and then we've had the um, coronavirus and the war yeah. in Ukraine. And then there are these things called bit bitcoins, which I do not understand. Me neither. And then the cost of living shooting up after the Russian invasion of Ukraine has left a lot of people with financial problems too. Yep, it has. But getting back to Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes about the futility of holding on to wealth. Yes, that's correct. Sometimes Solomon refers to something as a grievous evil, as he does in chapter 5 and verses 13 and 14, where we have two things which he says are grievous evils. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Okay, the first one of these, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, I suppose that's not uncommon today, is it? Some wealthy people hoarding their money, having to worry about what the markets are going to do, which is really out of their control. Now that's true. That's true. The, such people, they often seek to increase their wealth rather than using some of it for the good of others. And some people have such a great desire to gain or increase wealth more and more, it results in them working crazy, excessive hours. And you know, that can cause stress and heart attacks. Yes, and, and the second one, wealth lost through some misfortune, so there's nothing less left for the children to inherit. We've seen an example of this not 100 yards from where we live, actually. Elderly neighbours of ours needed to move nearer to their daughters, so they sold their little bungalow to a developer who had plans to change this old-fashioned bungalow into a luxury house. Yeah, yes. This developer had made his money in that Bitcoin market, which we mentioned earlier. He was halfway through the work of converting this bungalow when the Bitcoin market collapsed. He couldn't carry on and, in fact, in the end, had to sell the half-developed property at a loss. That was certainly a grievous evil. Certainly <laughs> yes, yeah. There's another grievous evil in Ecclesiastes 5, verses 15 to 17, which says, Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he cannot carry in his hand. This, too, is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. 
And what does he gain, since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness, with great frustration, affliction and anger. Oh, that's, that's really bitter, isn't it? Frustration at not being able to take it with you. Uh, true, true. But what will we do with it in the next life anyway? Well, gosh. <laughs> yeah. with it. Uh, anyway, in the next chapter, chapter six, Solomon speaks of another grievous evil under the sun. Here it relates to God giving people wealth, possession and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy their wealth and someone else enjoys it instead. So why do you think they wouldn't have the ability to enjoy their wealth? Well, I suppose they may be disabled or suffer from a chronic illness, or they may desire, they may die in the pursuit of wealth and prestige. Yeah, I know of someone um, in our city who was a workaholic, and he intended to make a fortune by the age of 50 and then retire to have a good time and travel the world and so on. But unfortunately, he died of a heart attack in his late 40s. Oh, gosh. Jesus told a parable about that exact situation in Luke 12, verses 13 to 21. A rich farmer who decided to build bigger barns and then take life easy and enjoy his wealth. And Jesus says this, But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? Yeah, that's another headache, isn't it? Who's going to get what you own after you're gone? What will they do with it? Will they squander it? Well, Solomon talks about that problem too. In Ecclesiastes 2.18, he says, I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish? Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil, into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless, he says. Yes, and the one who came after Solomon was Rehoboam, his son, and he was far from wise, as we mentioned earlier. Right. I suppose Solomon, with all his wealth, was well aware of the problems that are connected with it then, and it really comes through in Ecclesiastes, worrying that he might lose it or that it might lose its value, concerns that he'll be corrupted by it, afraid that he won't be able to enjoy it, and also frustration that he's going to die and not be able to take it with him. So he worries about who it's going to be passed on to and whether they'll use it well or waste it. Yes, it's almost better to be poor. At least you don't have these concerns then. As he says in chapter 5, the sleep, of a, the sleep of a labourer is sweet. The rich have too many worries to sleep. Yeah, but Zoya, a minute ago you referred to Jesus' parable of the rich farmer, which is in Luke 12. And at the end of that story, Jesus concludes in verse 21 by saying, This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. So what do you think he means by rich towards God? Well, that's a tricky one, Will. Jesus says similar things in other places. For example, in Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21, we find this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, 
there your heart will be also. Okay, so treasure on earth is obviously things that you can touch, like gold or silver or property um, or investments even that can be lost or destroyed. But what does he mean by treasure in heaven? And is having treasure in heaven the same as being rich towards God? Yeah, probably. I think it is, yeah. So then how do we build up treasure in heaven? Well, well, Jesus used that phrase towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which begins in Matthew chapter 5. In that sermon, he sets out the way his followers should live in view of the approaching kingdom of heaven. And it's a very demanding set of principles, you know. The focus is on the heart, what goes on in people's minds and thoughts. It's not so much dealing solely on how people behave outwardly. Yeah, but... Surely what we're like in our hearts will show itself in our speech and the way we behave, Mike. Well, um, well, ultimately, yes. But some folks can be very good at appearing to be moral, spiritual people by following outward rules. But inside they can be, well, very different. And of course, the Lord looks at the heart rather than the outward appearance. So what sort of things do you have in mind then? Oh, well, let's have a look. Um, the Lord says, although the law of Moses forbids murder and adultery, he goes on to say is that if we hate someone or look at a woman in that way, we commit these sins in our hearts and it's just as bad as doing them. Um, the Lord also criticizes the Pharisees and others who pray in the marketplaces so that they will appear to be very holy and they disfigure themselves when they are fasting so that everyone will know that they are fasting. Instead, his followers should pray privately and give no outward signs that they are fasting so that no one will know they're fasting. If you do that, that is being rich towards God. And Jesus says your heavenly father will reward you. OK, but that was said to the Jewish people at a time when they were expecting the kingdom to be set up very soon. Do these instructions still apply to us 2000 years later? Well, I think they do, Will. That's the way the Lord expects us to live as well. Remember the Sermon on the Mount begins in Matthew 5 with the Lord saying that it is the meek who will inherit the earth. It's the poor in spirit who will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the peacemakers who will be called the children of God. These characteristics are similar to the fruit of the spirit that the Lord grows in our hearts. That's love and joy and peace, patience and kindness and goodness faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that's in Galatians 5. Yeah, and, and there's something similar in Ephesians 5. Paul speaks there about the fruit of the light, which he says consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Right at the beginning of this podcast, Mike quoted 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 to 19, where Paul tells Timothy to instruct his congregation to do good to be rich in good deeds and generous. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. So that's how we invest in heaven then, we might put it that way, by allowing the spirit to develop these characteristics within us so that we can be true children of God and enjoy God's riches. Yes, that's why Paul urges us to live in a way that is worthy of our calling, worthy of the gospel and worthy of the Lord. It's how we are inside that really matters. But, but there's another, another point we really need to look at. 
The word riches doesn't appear in Ecclesiastes, although we have said quite a lot about being rich and the rich. However, Paul has some interesting things to say about riches. Two in particular come in Ephesians. The first is in Ephesians 1, 7, speaking of the work of the Lord Jesus on the cross. Paul says this, In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Right. So although the Lord wants us to live in a way that's appropriate for God's children and he will reward us for faithful service, I think we must never forget that our forgiveness and our adoption as his children, adoption into his family, they come about through his grace. That is his unmerited favour towards us. It's not due to any merits or qualities that we have. It's all by his grace. That's right. And it's the riches of his grace that he's lavished or poured out generously on us. Yeah. And the other passage about God's riches in Ephesians, this comes in Ephesians 2, 6 to 7. And this is what it says. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That's incredible when you stop to think about it. It's not just God's grace that he wrote about. It's the riches of God's grace. But it's not just the riches of God's grace. It's the incomparable riches of God's grace. It's going to take God the coming ages to show us the incomparable riches of God's grace. And God has not only forgiven us, he's raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly realms with him. And it's all down to that amazing grace. Yeah, yeah. And we're only just beginning to learn a little bit about that amazing grace and the associated riches. We have, well, we have so much more to learn and we will learn out. We will learn that in eternity. <laughs> we stray a bit away from Ecclesiastes, haven't we? Yeah. But I suppose we have an advantage over Solomon. I think we have anyway, even with all his wisdom. We've got an advantage because we've got the progressive revelation in Scripture through the writings of the prophets inspired by the Spirit, the teaching of Jesus himself and the writing of the apostles as well. So we can see further and more deeply, I think, than Solomon could for that reason, even though he was very clever. Yes, I always think that Solomon's comment in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 24, that a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil is rather limited. Yeah, yes, it is. That's true, Sylvia. But he also says a little later in 3.12, there is nothing better for people than to be happy and do good while they live. Okay, both of those are right up to a point, but we also need to consider the life to come. And in earlier podcasts, we have discussed how often Solomon has written about the judgment to come after resurrection. Yeah, you're right there. Um, I think that is quite important. But he says quite a lot about toil and work, doesn't he? There's quite a lot of interesting comments he makes about that subject. And that's what we'll look at in our next podcast. So thank you very much for listening.